At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, a man who was last right when he said yes to his friend Walker, Mark Bigney. And with me, as always, is my loyal friend, Michael Walker, who was last wrong when he said, maybe I'll ask that douchebag to do a podcast with me. How you doing, Walker? Doing fantastic, Mark. How are you today? I'm very glad to hear that, and I'm doing very well myself. Thank you very much. We are surviving the heat, we are surviving the coronavirus, and we are still finding times, time, the time and the effort to be wrong about our favorite hobby, this wonderful hobby of board gaming. This is a board gaming podcast about board games, and we're going to talk about the Aeurus. This is the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, where we talk about what we reviewed roughly last year, although that's getting more and more figurative. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And finally, we're going to have a topic, which is going to be communication restrictions, or in Walker's terms... I can't tell you. It's a secret. So with that in mind, let us head on into the Aeurus. What did we review last year, Walker? Last year, we reviewed a uh, one of a in a series of games that we love quartermaster general the cold war why did you say a series of games that we love walker because there's quite a few quartermaster general games and we tend to enjoy them all we tend to yes except for ones that are you know placed in terrible time periods that bore <laughs> me to death <laughs> Uh, well, look, my problem with the Cold War was not its theming or the time period. I find the Cold War very interesting. I found the framing of Quartermaster General of the Cold War very interesting with the, it was literally the first world, the second world, and the third world, namely NATO versus the Warsaw Pact versus the Unaligned Powers. We just didn't like the game. And so, well, I did, I just didn't like the game. Maybe you liked the game but hated, hated the setting, but my recollection was we had a fair number of mechanical complaints. I'm glad you remember, Mark, because I, I was straining my mind to remember this game whatsoever. Oh, okay. 
Well, my recollection is, well, yes, we haven't played it since we reviewed it. We have played other Quartermaster General games since then. We've played Quartermaster General, well, I played Quartermaster General 2nd Edition and the World War One version. I've even played Liberty or Death, the Peloponnesian Wars one since then, but have had no desire to return back to Quartermaster General the Cold War. And uh, I, I just did not enjoy it. It was just the standout from the series in terms of failing to engage. It was overlong, and I didn't like how a lot of the espionage cards shook out. It made it feel like a take-that game, and inability to interact with your opponents in substantive ways when you needed to. It just, just a bit of a misfire as far as I'm concerned. That is Quartermaster General, The Cold War. Now, on to the games we played this week. Mark, you and I got to play Monera. Not that we haven't played it before, but I got to introduce you to the new expansion, which comes with new cards and new tiles. And what do you think so far, Mark, with these new things? I strongly, strongly disliked the new elements. Even the map tiles. I was thinking, I was thinking that the map tiles are fantastic. I love the map tiles. At first, I, I didn't care too much. I didn't mind the new cards that came up, the, the, what would you call them? The task cards, I guess. But then in our game, I hated them. Like the fact because it just took out all points of gaming to it, right? Because there's no way you could really plan on what was going to come up, right? So not a fan of the new task cards, but the new map tiles I thought were fantastic. Monera as a co-op dexterity game, I always felt that the weakest element of it was trying to game out which level of task cards you can complete. There's easy, medium, and difficult. And if it were just a function of increasing difficulty and different board states would change the contours of how difficult those particular tasks were, that would be fine. But as it is, every time I play Monara, with, with the expansion or without, I'm always having to check the reference and saying, okay, well, what is the probability of pulling from this random desk a task that I am literally incapable of achieving? Not because I'm not skilled enough, but because I literally don't have the assets available from me in the random draw. And I felt that the expansion elements, both the tiles and the new cards, bumped that up to 11. For example, some of the new tiles say, okay, here are the pillars that you need to place. You need to place two red and two yellow, but you have to place them in a specific order. And what that does is it further constrains the usefulness of certain pillars. And so it further intensifies the need of certain pillars at certain times, which exacerbates the luck element. That was less problematic. The more problematic was that some of the mission cards, some of the task cards, just seem to lean into this arbitrary level. One of them was place three pillars of the same color. I pulled that up the first round. I was looking at it, and basically, based on my my recollection of previously, it's okay. So some of them ask you to complete a tile. Some of them ask you to play. Okay, I think I can do this. And it's like three of the same color. What on earth? The light, the the frequency with which you have three pillars of the same color, because putting yourself in that position is dumb play. So this is oh well. Better set yourself up with dumb play so that you hope you get this one card that demands you painted yourself into a corner. Then there was one that demanded you place two black pillars. So you have to have the black pillars and there have to be need for the black pillars on the... Uh, uh, I never want to play with those cards again. Well, Mark, Mark, is this hate and anger coming because it was your fault that the tower fell? Was it really? Oh, yeah, it was. <laughs> no, no, no. That part was fine. That part was just straight I messed up. I'm okay with that part. I just It, it just emphasized all the elements of Manara I don't like. I think it needs, I think the base game of Monara needs an excellent player aid that summarizes all of the available task cards in a way that clearly synthesizes when the thresholds are met that you want to start pulling from yellow and red. And I don't want to play with those new task cards, period. Period. I agree with that. And the fact the way they did the expansion rule book, 
they sort of explain what pillars and what, uh, how many more task cards you need to add. And they did it in a way like it was per map tile. So depending on which map tiles you decided to add to the game. And I, and I don't see why they wouldn't just add them all. Like are you, like every game you're going to decide which ones to pick and then add up all the pillars and then add up all the task cards. It just seems like way too much work for. Well, what that, it adds that at least serves possibly to minimize the intersection of weird tasks with weird platters that cannot be completed together. But as you say, it, it, it makes the setup rather cumbersome. And Manara at its core needs to be a quick, breezy, engaging experience. And if you start loading up the setup, if you start loading up the combat works, if you start loading up the necessity of tracking all the available cards, you're just sapping away any enjoyment of the game. So I did not particularly think that the expansion is playing to Minara's strengths, and that's why I don't think I would play with the expansion again. The expansion, once again, being called Rituals and Ruins. And there was one other, one other, just to, for full transparency, there was another part we played where it was like random map tiles. Like when we're, when you're ready to place a map tile, it'd be completely random. What'd you think of that part? That part I thought was great. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. I, that part simplified interacting with the components. In the base game of Minari, you're expected to quote unquote shuffle all these tiles of radically different size and shape. Here, at least you have a deck of cards where it's, where you can genuinely randomize which tile comes up next. That part I thought was fine. Yeah. And you, there's a different way. We did it the hardest way, which was completely random off the top. You can do it like a draft where you, you turn up three and you get to pick which one as well. So much, like you said, much handier, much easier to shuffle. And that was Monaro Rituals and Ruins. We are now in stage three of coronavirus response here in Ontario. I say this not because we want to talk too much about it, but just to emphasize that we are following official province guidelines. The outbreak in Ontario is, I think, pretty safe to say well under control, especially in our region of the world. Very, very few cases. And as a result, I have resumed in-person gaming outside the immediate, immediate social bubble of swag. And again, I say this not to dwell on the virus, but just to emphasize that we're being careful and safe. And so we resumed our Rangers of Shadow Deep campaign. This is the co-op miniatures game by Joseph McCullough, who is the author of Frostgrave. And so me and the Houndworker got together and started playing Rangers of Shadow Deep. And it really emphasized to me, recalling back my experiences of role-playing, and I mean bad role-playing, I mean murder hobo, kick down the door, kill everything on the other side, get some loot role-playing, that Rangers of Shadow Deep has well and truly killed any desire to return to any kind of Dungeons & Dragons or Pathfinder or any kind of role-playing of that nature ever again. Wow. Well, because what it does is, as I've said before, it has just enough narrative meat where things are happening, just enough customization of your party so that you can imbue them with a sense of personality. Uh, my ultimate bellwether for whether or not a system has enough narrative meat to it is, do I feel the need to write a couple of pages of background fiction for some of the characters? And Rangers of Shadow Deep takes that box. So I have a sense of who these people are, why they want to do what they do, etc. And so I get enough of that role-playing element, but I don't have to feel the need to overburden my combat simulator with five hours of shopping in town for the right kind of cheese or for the right shape of grappling hook. I realize I'm, I'm, I'm dismissing vast swaths of role-playing. And look, D&D is absolutely the proper jam for many a person. I'm just explaining that for me, I would much rather do something like Rangers of Shadow Deep. Now, we got to play a lovely little scenario where there were overturned carts and little gatekeeper, gatehouses and stuff like that. And that is why I absolutely recommend that you make a friend like the Handworker who has all this terrain and makes a lovely table. And everything looks just how it is. So Rangers of Shadow Deep is a lovely open source system, but very much relies on an ample collection of miniatures. It was great to come back to it. 
Is it a, an incredibly satisfying tactical and strategic experience? No. Is it an incredibly rich narrative experience? No. But it is just the right intersection for co-op minis gaming that really satisfies me on a number of levels, especially when played every once in a while. So that is our continuing adventures with Rangers of Shadowdeep. And who's the, did you mention the designer on that? Joseph McCulloch, yeah. Sorry, you did. We did miss the one for uh, Monera, though. It's Oliver Reichberg, and it's put out by Zock Games. Next, Mark got to introduce me to a game called Alone by Andrea Crespi and Lorenzo Silva, and they're from Horrible Guild. It is a two-player game, which I found a little random. I, th- I think actually you're being too generous, but go on. It is. It does say that you can play more than two players, but I really feel as though it will glow with a more intense light if it's only a two. If you only play with two players, <laughs> you know you're in trouble when Walker gets poetic. So there's a whole map laid out in front of the evil player, in behind a screen. They are moving all sorts of tokens around, hidden movement, so the alone player doesn't know where they are in the map. And you know, as lights go out, you can take away parts of the map. So sometimes it becomes a little more, little fiddly when you're like putting map pieces on, taking them off again, putting them back on again. The human moves, you have to update the map. The human turns on a light, you have to update two maps. Yeah. You got to show where the lights are. There's all sorts of tokens on your little map. I think the idea that they're going for is fantastic. The feel of it is fantastic, but I think it just gets, it sort of falls under like being a little fiddly after a while, right? If they just cut back a little bit, I think it would flow a little bit better. But overall, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, it it really is one of those things where the premise is really well executed. And again, I would like to compare it favorably to Nemesis. Nemesis, you never really felt the premises come uh, premise the premises. <laughs> you never really felt the premise come through. Whereas in Alone, it's all uh, it's all focused on this notion of a solitary human figure wandering through an incredibly dangerous environment, desperately trying to complete their mission objectives. But when you said it was a two-player game, and I said you were being a little too generous, having now played as both the human and as the evil player, I think this is a one-player game. I think that the human player gets to do all the interesting stuff because they're the one who are in a, who are in a position of information uh, paucity, and they get to play with cool toys, and they get to level up, and they get to manage their actions carefully towards tangible sets of objectives that vary from game to game. The evil players play reaction cards and do upkeep. And most of the time, they're just doing the upkeep. And they're looking at the cards and saying, oh, this isn't really the situation for this yet. Uh, maybe maybe if I do this thing, I'll set up for this thing later. Okay. And so you're constantly trying to set up for this take-that-card combination. And sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. Personally, and I'd, I'd like to ask your opinion, those instances where we were able to finally spring a trap and the card works more or less exactly the way we want it to, I didn't feel satisfied as a result. No. I, I got a instead of sense of, finally, I can do something. Exactly. Finally, instead of, at last, my machinations. Yeah, finally it worked. And finally he did this in the room that I set him up to do, or and this monster happened to be close enough. And the fact that it even went off at all when we were playing with more than one player, because people can jump in, like, you could set this thing up, like, four turns advance, and then some other player really wants to play a card, and what are you going to tell him? No? Exactly. So he plays a card, and, and this monster that you've, you know, spent time moving into position is now jumps out into a lit room, makes a one die attack and dies immediately. You know, it, it was just. And again, I can see what they were going for because the notion of a solitary human player playing against a committee of evil aliens, all conspiring to murder them really does make sense and really does communicate an atmosphere of paranoia and of solitude and of the odds being against you. 
But really, I think the game is easier for the human player the more bad players there are, which is counterintuitive. And honestly, I felt that a single role was being chopped up amongst three players and not very well. As you're exactly right, it's hard to hatch, it's hard to hatch plans when everyone is competing for limited resources. There's there's and just to be perfectly clear, there's literally a fixed number of things that the bad people can do. And when you play with two bad people, then they get to do half of those bad things. When you play with three bad people, you get to do a third of those bad things. And th- that is on top of the fact that, again, being reactive, playing these reaction cards and serving as an effective game master was not personally nearly as satisfying as playing as the human. So I feel if, when you're teaching this game, like for the first time, if you have a bunch of people, having multiple people would be perfectly fine and actually advantageous because like we said there's a lot of keep up on the map there's lots of things going on i'm going to compare it to uh stars rebellion where there's all sorts of cards coming in and troops to manage and and new rules to sort of like if you if it was your first game like you said there's you can only react but remembering when to react and and oh yes i had this card that could react so having multiple people jump in and do that is great for first time learning but then after that it, like, it would be the experience that we had and would be just painful. Yeah, first time learning for the first round, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. It's just, I, I, honestly, the reason, one of the reasons why I'm being so negative on this is I'm, I'm really disappointed because as I said, the, the, the way the conceit flows through the mechanisms and through the theme and the setup is really cool and playing as the human was really neat. But now what we have is a two player asymmetric game where one of the sides is vastly more interesting than the other. So in other words, Something that's competing directly against something like Space Hulk or Claustrophobia. So guess what? Cannot survive in our collection at all. Yeah. So, again, hints of genius here. I really like Lorenzo Silva. Generally speaking, his designs have lots of really good stuff, and I still maintain that, that you know, just on the strength of the King's Dilemma alone, he's someone to watch. But I, I feel that alone is a, is a near miss. Yeah, I love the double-blind sort of hidden map element of it, but like you said, in the end, it fell like a dud. Played another game of PAX Renaissance 2nd Edition. This is with advanced elements, so, so it is possible that some of the cards will change. But the way the 2nd Edition works, you mix all the cards together, so there's a wild degree of variety. Played twice with Dr. Handsome, and so you might be asking the standard question that everyone wants to know, or at least I always want to ask of myself after playing PAX Renaissance. Did you buy and did you play the Handsome and launch a, launch a Jihad in Hungary? The answer is, in the first game, I did. I didn't want to, but I thought of it. So see, there I was, right? The Handsome is there in the, in the tableau. And you're playing against Dr. Handsome. And if Dr. Handsome plays the Handsome, at that point you've lost. Like, there's just nothing... It's, it's true. The combo has, has has come down on the table, and there's no point... The force of history yes. and the force of handsomeness will crush you. And so I just couldn't afford to pass up that opportunity. It didn't work out. Uh, <laughs> Redu of Dracul was undone by a conspiracy yet again. Not a conspiracy led by his other older brother, Vlad, though. This was just a different conspiracy entirely. But, you know, for a while we had a very, very handsome caliphate in Hungary. At any rate... Every playing a Pax Renaissance really does emphasize that the more you internalize the levers you pull, the more variety you're going to get. And so you really do get payoff for all the incredible Baroque subsystems and rules. And I'm very, very glad that there are a number of opponents, among them Dr. Handsome, who are willing to keep going down this rabbit hole of the system. Because the more you internalize these things, the easier things get. And we had a bit of a disagreement when we reviewed Pax Renaissance about whether or not the ultimate payoff was worth it. I completely respect the fact that at the time, and probably to this day, you don't think that it's worth it. I do. And I'm very, very glad that I have the opportunity to keep exploring the way things go. So just as just as an example, we had in both games... All, we had about six total different victory conditions that were within striking distance of being satisfied. About three in the first game and three different ones in the second one. Now, 
I say different. There was some overlap because there's only a total of four possible victory conditions. But it really just goes to show that you have to be flexible and variable and take a look at what the map is telling you and try to make a push for the kind of victory condition you want. And that is really the kind of liberty and freedom that I want out of a, you know, dense historical game. And so big fan of PAX Renaissance 2nd Edition. Can't wait to see the final production version, although I somehow doubt that it's going to be very portable. And I do enjoy how dense of a game you get out of a twee little box. It so I'm going to be missing that. It is a small box. It is a small box. And so that was PAX Renaissance 2nd Edition. You introduced me to another great card game that's much like Core World. It's called Libido. It's you not called Libido. Ca- excuse me. I have a joke here. You're interrupting the flow of my joke. No, you're a joke. There's a game called Libido. Score. <laughs> where you're trying tell me, to tell me about where, this game where, called libido where you're trying to inc- how libido no, is it gone. you're trying to increase population on planets and you guys it's had this whole thing but no, no, the Walker, moment's Walker. gone now you, you blew the it. listeners want to hear your joke right. so the game is called albedo it is a game by kai herberts from herberts entertainment ug and like i said it's a lot like core worlds you're these planets come out and you have to you know hit a certain level of uh, ground support or, you know, a certain level of combat and you get to take that planet and or get more troops. It's, it's, it's a deck builder. And I like it because it's a lot shorter. I don't like it more than Core Worlds. Let's just get that off, off the table right from the beginning. But the artwork's fantastic. The way it flows is very quick. The fact that you're going to flip up two planets, you're going to set up your two decks from your hand, you know, this this pile is going to attack this planet, this pile is on the other, and whoever has the initiative gets to decide what they want to do first, and the other person can't do that, so they have to either do something less or something more or something they don't want to, and overall it was great. The only problem I had with it is I felt it was a little random, like like I said, because both people, you know, sort of set up their piles, so as they flip them, it could be anything, right? So you sort of trying to second guess you know, and sometimes it could just, you know, pay off or not pay off. It just seems sort of like, guess what? <laughs> so for once, I will agree with Walker's comparison. It is very much like Core Worlds in that there's a procession of planets that you can conquer. And especially since you have cards that generate air power and land power. But my Core Worlds, where the difference between land power and air power is purely arbitrary. Some things need air power to be conquered. Some things need land power. Some things need a combination of the two. In Albedo, air power is initiative and land power is how much you're able to conquer. And there is a limitation on how many people can show up at one place. So if you have more initiative, you might be able to grab something on the cheap. And I really do think that Albedo gets a lot done with a very minimal component set, rule set, and playing time. It's about a 20-minute game. And it's gets. I've I've been very very impressed with the quality of decision making. I've now played it about three or four times. I was first introduced to this game about a year ago from my friend Woogie, and he's a big proponent of the game. And I'm I'm really really enjoying exploring its complexities. Now I will grant you that the whole trade off element is a little bit tricky because it's a simultaneous action selection game that kind of sort of feels like a blind bit because as as Walker says you designate where what where your hand cards are going to go at the start of the round and then you reveal them simultaneously but the trick is unlike a lot of other blind bidding games there's a strong consolation for coming in second if you can't get what you want you can probably get something else and so for me a lot of the satisfaction in playing Albedo well 
is trying to figure out the situations where I really, really like what I'm going to get if I come in first, and I'm going to be happy enough if I come in second. And come, finding out that ju- just precise level of force so you don't overcommit and you don't un- undercommit. No matter what happens, you'll be relatively happy with what's going on. Some people play it differently, very much like other blind bidding games where they're like, all or nothing. I need to go in hard and I want to uh, cut them off at the knees, but if this gambit doesn't work, then I'm in trouble. And sure enough, there's room for risky plays like that as well. Albedo was one of those really, really, really small Kickstarters that got funded with a couple thousand bucks kind of deal. And it's a small box card game that can play up to eight players with two sets of decks. I haven't done that. The most I've ever played with is uh, three. But I'm a huge fan of what Albedo does. I prefer Core Worlds as well. But for when I don't feel like playing two and a half hours of deck builder, I think that Albedo is absolutely a good way to go just as an instance for how quick and visceral it is with the default there are there are three factions now available with uh, expansions but if you play with the default faction you're going to shuffle your deck at the end of the first round you get one hand before you shuffle your deck and so that's how quick and immediate it is so when you're getting new cards it's not like you're going to see them three or four rounds from now you pruning your deck and upgrading your deck happens at a very very quick pace yeah like, like you said quick pace and you have to decide right from the beginning am i going to try to make my deck a little stronger or am I going to start getting those victory points right away? Because that's what your decision is when you have initiative. You know, am I going to use my ground force points to get better cards or am I going to take those points now because I might not get them later? Or sometimes you can do both. Every card has a menu of things you can you can purchase from. And again, trying to orchestrate things such that you can end up with an advantageous situation regardless of whether or not you're beaten to the punch is, I think, one of the interesting challenges in Albedo. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I look forward to playing it some more. And there, I've now played two of the three factions. I have yet to play the third one. I'm looking forward to giving it a shot. And that was Albedo. I also got to show you another sci-fi ship-based game called Flick Fleet. This is also something that was introduced to me by my, by my friend Woogie. This is a game of acrylic starships that you flick across the table, and they attack by flicking dice, and you sometimes care about what the die result is after you flick it, which is an interesting little little twist. I'm a huge fan of the components of the game. I love the little ships and the way the fighter wings consist of concentric rings that slot together, and the bomber wings are little pieces that slot together. I've talked a lot about Flick Fleet over the past couple of weeks. What did you think of Flick Fleet, Walker? Well, I think it, much like Flick Wars, these games need to stop telling me how to flick. <laughs> I'm, I'm just tired of it. Well, but like you said, the sometimes the die result matters. So therefore, if you flick it off the table, then it's a miss no matter what. And in games up to this point, before we played Disc Wars, or sorry, before we played Flick Wars, you could power flicks through and it really didn't matter. So I've had to change my 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 habits and my style of flicking and and i I personally just don't like it mark i don't like being told what to do (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) but like you said that's just being silly but of course it is fantastic and the fact you talked about this last week how it's it it's really weird how to how to maneuver your ship it's unrealistic but very interesting because oh is it most of the way space combat actually works Oh, come on. <laughs> so, like he said, your, your ships are acrylic, and there's, like, these thin, really thin, long ships. So you can see what would happen if you f- you have to flick it from where the thrusters are at the back. You know what's going to happen when you do that. It's going to probably spin across the table and, and end up in some odd facing, right? And seeing as next turn, if you want to move it again, you have to flick it from the back. It's probably not going facing the direction you want to go. So it's... Very hard to maneuver these ships around. 
Whereas opposed to the fighters, they've done something fantastic with that. They just made them circle. So fighters are very maneuverable. They can go wherever they want pretty well. I just like how they did that. I thought it was very interesting. So just to recap, Walker like Flick hard. Yes. Walker, Walker not like finesse. Walker, Walker like Flick hard. Walker hit hard. Flick hit things off table. Make pain, suffering. Excellent. That is Walker's review of Flick Fleet. Then we brought Blitzkrieg back to the table. It is by Palomori by PSC Games, and we decided to try the Japan expansion finally. Is that the, what's the official name of the expansion? It's called the Nippon expansion. The Nippon expansion. And it brings Godzilla into it, which is, you know, of course, has to be included. And just, just as a minor parenthetical, when we complained about how there weren't really good kaiju games other than Monster Apocalypse, people on the forum pointed out, quite rightly, that we had left out Rampage, or as it's now known, Terror in Meeple City, which is a pretty darn good kaiju is it? I have not game. played it yet. So you haven't played I Rampage? Have not, no, I haven't. I've seen it. In oh, that's an oversight. Game, so we'll ooh, to, we'll you're not to... you're, you're not able to flick hard though. Uh, uh, you can flick a little hard, but if it goes off, the, uh, well, we'll see. All right. So with the Nippon expansion, it brings Japan into into the into the game, and what's happened is uh, Germany has taken over the United States of America, and Japan has decided to come to the rescue. Can we say oh, that? I, sure, why not? <laughs> why not, right? <laughs> so it adds a pretty well mirrored, you know, set of tokens to to the game. But you get to use the expansion board, which is much different than the standard board. And this one, there's all sorts of uh, all, plenty of more theaters to choose from. But there's there are five action cubes on the board, so those are the five theaters that you're allowed to put tiles in at that moment. And then when you've filled one of those theaters because there's a lot less space for tokens. You're placing these tokens out on the board that you've randomly drawn from your bag and your hand of three, you choose these tokens and you put them out on the board and you're trying to get the majority. You're trying to get the majority on the, in the theaters, right? And your tokens go up and down the scale. And like I said, in this new map, when it fills, you can max it out so much that you'll get bonuses when you move the action token to the next theater. So you can already start at an advantage at the next theater. And whoever completes the theater can then decide where you go. So after Los Angeles has been determined, you can then go to, say, I don't know, Seattle or Las Vegas. There are a couple of choices about where to proceed. And we both agreed that we, uh, we think that the original map was much better, but I don't think the, this was bad at all. I think it was a nice change. I think they did a great job, you know, changing it up and making it much different. You know, it's not just different colors and different, you know, they didn't just call the different, you know, I mean, change the names of areas. And I think I enjoyed playing on it. Given the simplicity of the system of Blitzkrieg and given how tightly designed it is, I think they did a reasonably good job with the expansion, even though I prefer the base game because they introduced a different army that is slightly different. We didn't do a thorough analysis of the tile mix, but, you know, you have Godzilla and you have other slightly weaker tiles because, you know, Godzilla. And the map is interestingly different in the sense that you can trace the geography. The, the salient objection that I had, and it's only a minor one, is I prefer the base map because there are just, at any given time, more places where you can place tiles. And there are more simultaneous tugs of war going on. And you can never fully give up on any of the tugs of war without being seriously, seriously constrained. As opposed to the Nippon board, well, it's not the Nippon board, it's the Nippon expansion with the map of the U.S., where... 
number one, you can give up on a theater because it's going to go away soon enough and that doesn't permanently hamstring you. And number two, there are always fewer places to play. And so I didn't really get that same sense of tension and trade-off that I got at Blitzkrieg. All that having been said, though, I still think that Blitzkrieg, with or without the Nippon expansion, is a fabulous two-player distillation of Dogs of War, which is one of our favorite worker placement games, and really an excellent design by Paolo Mori. And I'm a huge fan of it. And again, in terms of the amount of time that it takes to get a very, very satisfying confrontational worker placement experience in a two-player-only game, I think Blitzkrieg is extremely hard to beat. And that was a review copy we got from PSC Games. Walker taught me how to play Quicks. Walker has been playing Quicks and a number of other roll and write games. Uh, I did not enjoy Quicks very much game-wise. As an experience, I thought it was fine. Look, roll and write games are fine, as I've explained before. It's fun to roll dice and see what comes up. And when it's a quick social experience, it's hard to find them actively unpleasant. But Quicks, I felt, really didn't do anything to avoid the fundamental problem with a lot of roll and write games, which is, hey, did you roll well? Did you? Did you roll well? Congratulations, you win. As opposed to, oh, you didn't roll well and it was your turn? Oh, you're not very smart, are you? And so Quicks didn't even try. Uh, that's pretty clever. At least tries. It doesn't really get very far. But Quicks is just straightforward, hardcore. Oh, you rolled a 12. Great job. Well done. Good on you. Next player. Yeah, it's pretty well how I summed it up a while ago. It's we true. All of roll and write games. I rolled well. I won. You did not roll as well. Yes. You lost. And I think it's the fundamental challenge of a roll and write game to try to mitigate that as much as possible. And I think that good designers who have been working in the Eurosphere of dice games, like, for example, Reiner Knizia, have been dealing with this for decades, really. And it's strange to me that in the past couple of years, as roll and writes have become more popular, we've kind of forgotten all the ways to design good dice games. And we're just going back. To, not that Quicks is a particularly recent design, but a lot of the other more recent roll and writes. And honestly, having discovered Sonora, I don't feel the need to play a roll and write ever again. Sonora gives me everything that I like from the cool scoring combinatorics of a roll and write, but it's a flicking game and therefore flatly superior. And so that was Quicks. And those are the games we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Mark, there's a game called Fuzzies out. It's by the same people that did Wavelength. It's a dexterity game, but I'm not like over the top like I would be with other dexterity games. It's these really fuzzy puff balls that sort of stick together with a combination of puffiness and static, I'm sure. And you put them in a container and then flip it upside down. And so you got this tower of multicolored fluff. And I didn't look too much in the club, but I'm sure the cards say, you know, take this color from the bottom and put it on the top or take this color and, you know, match it up with some other colors. There might be some interesting gameplay there, but. It seems like more or less Jenga with fuzzies. Yes. I definitely, I'm interested to give it a try, but I don't know if I'm going to actually back it. It is on Kickstarter right now. On the one hand, it doesn't look particularly interesting. On the other hand, given the incredible success of Wavelength and given how focused the experience was, I'd be a little bit more curious to, un to hear what it is that they were trying to do and what they've done to the fundamental stacking formula to make it a little bit different. Now, I will say that it does have one salient advantage over Jenga in that setup looks to be trivial. The setup yes. for Jenga is a little painful, whereas with fuzzies, you just dump all the fuzzies in a tube, and then you have set up fuzzies, which seems nice. So my next Kickstarter news segment I just have written here is Crisis Averted. Just a second. Let me think about this. Must be something so trivial and un that something I totally don't care about. That's right. It is the the that Stephen Power... Bicha Purusa game that you keep talking about. What is that about again? <laughs> <laughs> I 
It is a good thing, I feel, <laughs> listeners, that I have never discussed religion or theology with Walker, because if he ever gets, gets a sense of any of your fundamentally deeply held values, he is going to troll you harder than an American president. Yes, this was actually going to be one of my news items the Steven Universe Beach of Palooza card game has funded. One of our listeners actually took credit for taking it over the top, which, right. if true, <laughs> would make me so happy. That's right. But <laughs> I was very worried that it wasn't going to fund because apparently there was some contention that this was just a, a cash-in by Cartoon Network, whereas the team at Cryptozoic, who Erica Bioris and, and her, uh, her fellows are like, no, 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 this is a labor of love. It, it's clear, anyone who has any enthusiasm for Steven Universe, within five seconds it was clear that the people who made this game had an affection for Steven Universe because they really go into some of the deeper cuts of, of the references. Uh, I'm looking forward to the Steven Universe Beach of Palooza card game, and I don't think I'll show it to you because you wouldn't appreciate it. So, uh, so yeah. Raspberry for me? Absolutely. All right, and my last piece of news before Mark finishes it out is more Kickstarter stuff. I know in this COVID time, we don't really go out into groups as much and we don't really paint miniatures as much but this just caught my eye and I like talking about things that are interesting to me it's called Studio X Mobile Painting Studio and a lot of people when they do when it is normal times like to go down to your local gaming store or over to a friend's place and do your miniature painting because it can be tedious to some or just doing it in groups is usually more fun and this thing looked amazing a place to hang your brushes place to put all your paints place to put your figures and it clicks together and in this little, you know, satchel that you get to carry wherever you want. Seemed fantastic. Check it out on Kickstarter. Studio X Mobile Miniature Painting Studio. Yeah, painting miniatures as a social experience always... It's not the way I like to do things, but then again, I don't like painting in the first place. But watching a bunch of committed minis painters share techniques and share equipment and share materials and just be able to chat while they're engaged in this potentially tedious process it really does seem like one of the best aspects of the hobby and it always i always find it very encouraging when i see that people who are enthusiastic about miniatures games get together and paint in a social way but yeah transporting the materials is a pain so it definitely seems like a potentially useful peripheral Finally, a bit of uh, podcast-specific news, or rather, so very wrong about games, extended universe media news. And this is actually the first time that Walker's going to be hearing about this, not that he really cares or not that it really matters. Is that the name of the podcast again? What was it again? (laughs) I have decided to start doing video reviews again under the uh, aegis of All the Games You Like Are Bad. And I'm going to be doing this as timed exclusives for Patreon backers, in part because some Patreons were have expressed enthusiasm and wanted me to get back at it. So this is going to be an opportunity for commissioners and overlords to commission and overlord uh, specific reviews. So if there are reviews that you want to be done of new games, of old games, just let me know. Uh, I don't have a fixed release schedule yet, and I'm not entirely certain how long they're going to remain patron exclusives but you can look forward to the first one going to be coming out this week and i'm probably going to try to churn out at least two months maybe more as the spirit moves me and this is primarily motivated as i say as a desire to give back to our lovely backers because some people have asked for it and if wherever possible if our supporters ask for something i like to be able to give it to them so look forward to that in the near future and that is the news and why it doesn't matter now on to our topic of the week, which is, I can't tell you, it's a secret. So this is actually about communication restrictions. These are about games where you are limited in what you are able to say to your fellow players, 
where you are literally not allowed to utter certain things or sometimes anything at all with respect to the game state and where we think this is successful and where we think this is unsuccessful. Why don't we start with games where you are literally not expected to be able to say anything with respect to the state of play other than, say, rules questions. And Hanabi and Mysterium do strike me as two examples of that. Uh, another one is uh, Shipwreck Arcana, but Shipwreck Arcana is very much like Hanabi in terms of its structure anyway. Same with Beyond Baker Street. Yes, that is true. So how successful do you think those things are? Well, this is, by by sales and popularity, they seem fairly fairly useful. Well, I didn't mean that. I meant in terms of design elements. Weak. <laughs> <laughs> marketable but weak, says Walker. <laughs> That's right, marketable but weak. Okay, what do you mean by weak? Well, I mean, it just puts, it puts, all, it, it puts a lot of the gameplay on the players, right? It's, it's, it, it's really these games that could fall apart if you have the wrong group. You know what I mean? If, it's, if the people aren't into that type of game or they don't understand what's going on or they just don't – it's a very odd mechanism sort of, you know, not to cheat or not to just – you know, people just – sometimes just want to socialize and they're going to drop hints or just, you know, say, oh, well, you know, you know what I mean, or, you know what I mean, like, and sort of just flub it and, and ruin it for everyone. Well, I can definitely say that in the context of Hanabi and Mysterium and things like that, it definitely, on top of all that, because all communication restrictions to a certain extent put a damper on table talk, which is not something I approve of or generally prefer. In the case of games where you're literally not supposed to be able to talk about anything with respect to gameplay, I find one of the worst aspects of it is that it really causes new players to internalize pressure in compa- in cooperative games because Hanabi and Mysterium are, are both pure co-ops and many people like the fact that there's this communication restriction more on that later. But for me, the salient downside is when you're teaching it to new players and it's their first turn and they're looking and say, but I don't want to make a mistake, but I can't ask whether or not this is a good play to make. Now, in the context of, of Mysterium, though, I think we are exaggerating a little bit. In Mysterium, it's the ghost who's not allowed to say anything the other players are allowed to say more or less whatever they want. Which leads to, I think, Mysterium is a great way to segue into one of the issues of communication restrictions, and that is cheating. Because Mysterium is, interestingly, of the games that we're going to talk about today, the one I think that is most amenable to cheating, but the one where I've seen cheating the least. Because in theory... When you're first of all, when playing Mysterium, you could break the game trivially, right? You know, you could set up a convention where the ghost says, where you and the ghost understand that. Well, if you want the second card from the left, if the ghost plays two cards in front of you, that's the one you're going to pick. Or five cards from the left, they play five cards in front of you, that's the one. You yeah. Pick. Or the majority of the color, we've run into that problem before. It's like, oh well, the majority of the color on this card was red, so I want you to pick the red one. But that, oh, oh, but that's I not know, cheating, it, though. I know, that's... but I mean, it's just it's borderline. If you if you really? if you overuse it, if you know, keep doing really? it every time. I think it just seems sort of because I don't think that's what the other player really wants, right? They want they want to figure it out in other ways. You know what I mean? They don't want to just keep looking at the colors over and over again. Okay, well I've never I've never seen a session where the ghost had the necessary cards to rely exclusively on one mode of analysis. Color color association is often an acceptable mode of analysis. But then there's object association, shape association, location, blah, 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 blah. Any number of other kinds of association. I've never seen a session where the ghost could rely all on one, uh, all on one metric, either explicitly or tacitly. And so that's fascinating because it, it seems to me entirely legitimate. Like, why would you want to outlaw any one of those possible no, metrics? Not outlaw, but I mean, or just, discourage. Well, not frown on. Imply that it's cheating or breaking the game. Because it's overused, if it was overused in a, okay. in a particular session. Okay, that's fine. Another thing that could happen, and I've, I've sometimes seen people get up to the edge of this, but it's never actually happened, where the other players say, well, 
if the ghost wants me to believe this thing, then next turn they should do this very specific act that I'm telling them to do. I've never seen anyone get that close. But it's inevitable that you, when you're starting to have this discussion, you're trying to get into the psychology of the ghost. The ghost is expected to make some inferences based on the discussion that you have as players. True, but if you start, yeah, like you say, but even that doing a percent facts or... I've seen it even in our sessions where I said, well, if he was trying to tell me this, he would have done this instead. And then next turn they do it. You know, you're trying to, trying sure. to lead the, but again, lead the player. But on. again, it, it's very much in this, in the sense of metrics. It's like, I, I've looked at this. I don't know whether I should be drawing the association of blades or I should be drawing the association of orange. And at the moment, I'm going to have to go on more or less a 50 50 shot. I'm going to make the association of blades. If I'm wrong and next turn I get a card that's orange, I guess it was orange this entire time. That to me doesn't strike me as against the spirit or the letter of the rules at all. That's as, true. Com- as compared to other things, which is fascinating again because Mysterium you could break easily. Hanabi, on the other hand, I see people cheat all the time. <laughs> the number of con- it's almost like bridge, right? Bridge is fascinating. I don't know. I don't, I know hardly anything about bridge, but every once in a while, uh, I read these marvelous long reads about, you know, world, uh, world bridge competitors who get caught cheating because of some elaborate system involving a dove, the magnetic field of the earth and where bidding cards are situated and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, but people develop these in-house conventions about what means what. And I played this first on a Tuesday on this side of the table. So that means I know you've got a two showing and ugh. anyway, <laughs> I've only ever played how to be straight, but maybe that's one of the reasons why I always lose. <laughs> I want to go back to just what you talked about where where you completely outlaw speaking altogether and people want, you know, that's why people play games is to talk back. Right. And I'm just wondering if that's why, you know, our code names games have, you know, morphed into this, you know, where we have do so much, you know, back talk. While, <laughs> you know what I mean? We engage in so much, you know, uh, bad talking, you know, while the other people are trying to guess. And I wonder if that's part of it because we're so restricted in what we can say when it's our turn that, you know, we go over the top when it's not our turn. That's one of the fascinating elements about Codenames, right? Because, again, like Mysterium, you've got one player on a team that is unable to say anything other than merely confirm or deny correct guesses. And then everyone else is able to say whatever they want. The the, the fun thing about Codenames, though, and I don't know why this doesn't happen as much with Mysterium. I think in Mysterium because it's, just cause it's a pure co-op rather than team-based. The agony of watching the Codemaster desperately try to keep a poker face as everything they've done is systematically misconstrued by their teammates. It's just this fascinating psychological element. It's one of the reasons, honestly, why I think Codenames is so brilliant. Just that delicious torture. Or we've seen, I think we've seen it in Mysterium where one, where the two people on, on the, on the guessing sides, the one person is taking the person down the complete wrong path, right? <laughs> and, you know, the, the ghost has set it up perfectly, yet the other player is talking the other player out of it. <laughs> but the there it's rage starts sure. to build on the ghost's face. But there it's just frustrating as opposed to delicious, <laughs> yes. is what I'm getting at. True, true. And and I agree with you. The so so getting to this issue of, of games being primarily, or if not primarily, saliently a social experience. Talking again about a game where in theory you're not supposed to talk about the game state at all, anyone at all, like Hanabi. It is unfortunate because you're gonna start talking. Like, just sitting in silence playing a game is not satisfying. And so the the table talk necessarily being completely divorced from going on in the game, it leads to this weird sort of cognitive dissonance. And it is one of the aspects that I don't appreciate. Make no mistake, I love Hanabi. I think it's a fabulous game. It is one of uh, my favorite co-ops, certainly one of my favorite designs by Antoine Boza. And I will play it in any given opportunity. But the communication aspect, although necessary to make the game work, is not ideal from a social dynamic. And then there's the communication in the crew 
Yes. Which is very interesting, right? You got the one token and you're placing it on a card up or down. And it's very much like, uh, Euchre. You know, you take a tour or a trick, sorry, just a trick taking game. You're taking tricks and you're telling, uh, the people at the table what one card in your hand is. And, and you're trying to just make sure either that- the lowest of a suit, the highest of a suit or the only of a suit. So there are a number of ways you can do this. You can communicate what kind of suits you can win. You can communicate when you're about to go void. You can communicate whether you have a card that someone else needs for a mission that they've got. Uh, the timing can be really yeah, crucial. I was about to say the same thing. And it's wonderful that they didn't make you do it right at the beginning. Exactly. Of the it's like you can play out a card and then, and then put it out immediately. And then it tells a whole different story. And that's one of the areas where I really think my play in the crew is really weak. I haven't quite figured out when to communicate or when to take advantage of this. And again, it's it's one of those things where, unfortunately, again, nothing you say is supposed to relate to the game state. And in theory, even such expostulations as, oh, I guess we're boned now, is technically cheating. Because what that means is you're evaluating the state of everyone's hands, which leads people to make inference, blah, 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 blah. We don't enforce it that radically. We definitely have more table talk than, strictly speaking, the rules are supposed to allow. But I, you know, it's a co-op game. A little bit of judicial cheating never hurt anyone. And I don't think that a little bit of table talk is as deleterious to, to playing the crew as it would be something like uh, Hanabi. Anytime you let something slip in Hanabi, the game state, I think, is very seriously undermined. Let's talk about, a bit more about co-op games. So I've written here, usually comes up as a problem in co-op games when they try to inject some sort of competition. Yes. So like with all these one versus all games or dungeon crawling games or it just seems to be in all these games where you can't tell people specific things that you have in your hand even though the game is completely cooperative. Yeah. Like let's go with number one, Gloomhaven. Absolutely. It comes up twice in Gloomhaven. One I think is essential and never had a problem with it. Never bothered me. And that's the, your initiative, right? You put down your two cards and you're not supposed to tell anyone. I think we've, we fudged it a couple times. I'm not sure. I haven't read the specific rule myself because you were the, the rule master for that particular game and almost every other game. Thank you for because trying I'm, to explain it in the way that makes me sound like the biggest douchebag. No, possible. well, I was, great, I, was, I, I, was I was about to elaborate. I was about to say because I'm too lazy and dumb to actually read rule books, but you didn't like. Oh, and me. now I look like a bully. That's great. Oh wow. Okay, so I would like to impose a new communication restriction on this podcast. All right. So, <laughs> but I think we've taken liberties with that. We say, okay, well, I'm, you know, what I mean, I'm not sure. Are we allowed to say anything yes, while you're, you're playing you're, cards? Well, that, okay, so going back to our criticisms of Gloomhaven, we both love Gloomhaven. It has its problems, and all I think almost all of its mechanical problems relate to its bizarre attempts to make things almost kind of semi-competitive. That you can't share gold and weirdnesses with that, and that leads to further weirdnesses with things like retirement. The fact that your battle goals are in theory secret, where you're like, no, 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 don't open that door for reasons. And the initiative level, where, again, in the rules, it's kind of like, and this is this is just a general family of things, it's what I call the Shadows Over Camelot problem. You're not supposed to say specifically but you can talk generally about things. And this gets you to really absurd things. David Serlin, who is a guy who is occasionally interesting and occasionally infuriating, let me rephrase that, a guy who is rarely interesting and often infuriating, says that any game with communication restrictions, all those communication restrictions will inevitably be undermined by proper play. He's of the opinion that if a game presents you with communication restrictions, any smart person who is good at the game will develop conventions that will supersede those rules. In other words, he has no care for the spirit of rules as intended. Right? So you could say, I'm playing a card that's swift like a sparrow, and you just say, by the way, guys, swift like a sparrow means less than 20. And he thinks that that he thinks that stuff like that is okay, or something parallel to that. But inevitably, 
in some cases, that is what you end up with. So we were playing Gloomhaven a lot with Dr. Stallone. And you're allowed to give general information. So when he would play a card and he says, this round I'm going very fast. We knew that meant seven. We knew it meant seven. Exactly seven. Precisely seven, not roughly seven. We knew it meant seven because that was his fastest card. And that was just like, nobody did anything wrong. We just made that inference. And so, yeah, those communication restrictions, we try to respect them as best we can, but they're kind of silly and they break down. True. And the alone, like we just talked about earlier, uh, when you're playing with multiple players, you can't show each other your cards. So like we said, you've set up this thing that's taken, you know, four or five turns and you're not allowed to really show, well, I don't do that because I set this up and I have this card, but you can't tell anyone about it. And it just seemed silly. Well, you're allowed to say, so, so the rules in alone are, you're allowed to say whatever you want. You can't show each other cards, but anything you say has to be discernible to the human player. So you can say, don't play any cards. I've got this. That's acceptable. And then you could theoretically go into detail about what I've got this means, but then the human player would know. So I don't know. It kind of sort of works. I just, I just really hate the way it works in Shadows Over Camelot or Battlestar Galactica, where you're pitching in a card with a certain number, or in some cases, a certain color, and you're not supposed to say what color it is, and you're not supposed to say what number it is, but you're allowed to vaguely talk about what kind of card this is. It's like, this is a good card. This is a very good card. This is an extremely good, it's not, so like, does it break down into a Likert scale or not? Like it's just it, it it gets fuzzy and it you can't really get to a solid a solid clarity. And I'm not saying that this upsets me from a sense of competitiveness. It just upsets me from a sense of as a game player playing the game quote unquote as intended. And that sense of dislocation of not really knowing what the author wants me to do, whether or not I'm playing properly, I find that I find that troubling, and I don't like it when rules are that ambiguous. Some games that have changed it, like when Pandemic first came out, you're supposed to keep your hand secretive. And now that the new iterations that have come out in the legacy versions, they say to put your, you know, your hand down on the table. Yep. So what this leads to is a little bit more alpha gaming because now people can see every, what everything, what everyone has. And so it can sort of, you know, puzzle everything out and say, no, you should do this and this. And I think maybe that's why they wanted to keep it secretive in the first place. That way, you know, people aren't telling you what to do. But I think in the long run, especially in pandemic, it just makes the game more fun. Well, to my mind, that's a, a, a kind of corollary to communication restrictions because it's not that the information wasn't allowed to be conveyed. You were allowed to say whatever you wanted about your hand. And since it's pure co-op, you would be truthful. You can say, I've got Blue Montreal, Yellow Los Angeles, Black Karachi, whatever. Uh, it's just it's just the question of how is this information tracked or how specifically this information is conveyed or what, what form of note-taking you're allowed to do. But it is effectively, at the end of the day, a communication restriction. There is one form of... I, I would just like to give a shout-out, turning back a couple of seconds ago to when I was complaining about Shadows Over Camelot and Battlestar Galactica. The Menace Among Us, I think, solved that problem very neatly. The Menace Among Us divided all secret action cards into three categories, good, neutral, and bad, and they specified which one was which. It's right on the player aid. These are the good cards, these are the bad cards, these are the neutral cards. And you were allowed to say about hidden information only whether it was bad, neutral, or good. Because the reason why these communication restrictions exist in these three games, Shadows of Camelot, Battlestar Galactica, Menace Among Us, is to give enough cover for the uh, hidden traitors, for the bad guys, for the uh, for the semi-co-op element of it. And the Menace Among Us lets the communication restriction be perfectly transparent, yet have enough color cover for the traitors. And that's one of the reasons why I think it really did improve on the formula to a substantial degree. And nobody ever had any problems about playing fast and loose with the communication restrictions. You don't have these troubles because, again... In addition to this social problem, 
as a game explainer, I hate having to tell people that they've been accidentally cheating. It just, I don't like doing it. It's unpleasant. Nobody likes it. It's a bad scene. The last item on my list here is auction games. Lots of auction games so you can't, you know, tell people how much money you have. And I think it leads to fun gameplay, right? And some, because you can sort of bluff how much you have, right? And that leads to a whole different element of the game as well, where you can, you know, play off that you have way more than you actually have or a lot less than you have. And I think it's a great mechanism. The last one I'd like to shout out is something that works very well in theory, and it works in practice, although it just doesn't pay off as much in practice as I would have liked. There's this weird, obscure little game called La Révolution Française, where you represent the six different political factions in the aftermath of the French Revolution, and you arrange yourself from the left wing to the right wing. And you're allowed to say whatever you want at whatever volume you want. The trick is you have to sit in seating order. So the radicals sit next to each other, and then they filter out through the moderates, and then they get all the way to the conservatives. And so you can whisper to somebody who's very close to you politically uh, politically leaned, no problem, and no one will know what you're planning. But if you want to talk to somebody who's opposed to you, you have to shout. And so it's a weird form of physical re- physical restriction on communication that is very, very simple to apply. It's just, look, no game talk, no conspiring away from the game table, and you have to sit in this specific place. Uh, in practice, there's not a whole lot of conspiring in the game, so it doesn't pay off quite the way that I wanted it to. But it is nonetheless rather cute. So that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is gold number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.